A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, great minds and fellow listeners of the History of England podcast. Obviously, I'm not David, but I am Zach, and I know that means next to nothing to probably most of you. But either way, I hope you enjoy this special little guest episode on the life and would-be legacy of a truly forgotten Stuart, Henry Frederick, Prince of Wales. So welcome to the show, everyone. If I could take a second just to introduce myself, for today I am your host, Zach DeBacco, host of the Drinks with Great Minds in History podcast. On my show, we discuss the great minds, the movers and shakers of our shared past that shaped countless civilizations and sometimes drove their respective societies down some dark and deadly roads. From Abe Lincoln to Isabella of Castile to Napoleon III to Catherine de' Medici, and even a few stewards, we have covered a cast of characters and enjoyed a drink or two along the way. Now, I won't lie, on my show, we do swear, drink, and carry on a bit too much sometimes. But if that sort of history doesn't bother you, then head on over and check out TGMH. On to our topic for today, though. Henry Frederick Stewart. I'm sorry, who? Wait, is that that one guy that David mentioned that one time for about one second? Yes. And you may be wondering, if he wasn't really discussed, does he really matter? Well, maybe he doesn't. But at the very least, he provides us with a moment to look at a lost figure of the past the past that we are all enjoying on the History of England podcast right now. That is, a Stuart, all but forgotten in the grand scheme of the English Civil Wars. A great mind that might have just been the solution to all the problems begotten by his father and brother. Now again, on my show, I drink and may not use the best of language, but here, for the sake of David's sterling reputation, I will stick to my classroom teacher day job language and simply have a cup of tea because it's early when I'm recording this. This is the History of England podcast, and as an American, there's nothing more American for me to do than bring up tea when discussing English history. So let's get to it. Today, we will take a brief look at a potentially great mind that never quite got to be, as well as what the history of England might have been. The Great Mind in Question, The Lost Prince, Henry Frederick Stuart. Not exactly sure how David will be introducing this episode, but a huge thanks to all of the History of England fans that listen to this. For a final time, I am Zach, sometimes called Mr. DGMH, host of Drinks with Great Minds in History. I hope you'll go check it out, and a big thanks to David for letting me drop in here. Oh yeah, and one more thing. On my show, I sing a silly little song to start each episode, and I think it might be bad luck for me to do a podcast without it, so... It's some history for you, a reason to drink for me. It's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. So who is Henry Frederick? Most don't even know. In fact, a fairly recent poll of the British population showed his name was 
all but, quote, dropped from the national memory. Yet to others, like historian Sarah Fraser, Henry Frederick was, quote, the greatest Prince of Wales we, that is England, ever had. So which is it, a forgotten, forgettable name, or a truly great mind and prince? Let's find out. Henry Frederick's brief tenure on this earth is easily forgettable, but equally intriguing, as he is representative not only of the political situation in post-Elizabethan England, but also an answer to the question of what might have been, as England crept toward one of its greatest periods of political, social, and religious division. Prince Henry Frederick Stuart was born in Scotland in February 1594, just shy of a decade before his father's English kingship began. Poised to be the heir of the Scottish throne at birth, his status was greatly elevated when his father became the King of England in 1603. His father was, of course, King James VI of Scotland, the wisest fool in all of Christendom, who feared and hunted witches, denounced and profited off of tobacco, the very man that all History of England listeners know as the beautiful contradiction that was King James I of England. His mother, Anne of Denmark, was as complicated a figure as James, and even a source of contention as there was some speculation as to who might be Henry Frederick's father, King James VI, or Anne's lover, Ludwig Stuart, the Duke of Lennox. Furthermore, and somewhat ironically, her Catholic leanings led James to remove his young son to Stirling Castle, where he would be raised under the Earl of Mar's direction until James' ascension to the English throne. As to the irony there, well, Anne heralds from a pretty Protestant nation from the get-go. Although there is some debate as to exactly who, Henry Frederick was named for two of his ancestors. For me, the most credible connections are his paternal grandfather, Lord Darnley, that is, Henry Stuart, the second husband of Mary, Queen of Scots, who was murdered just eight months after the birth of James Stuart, possibly being killed by Mary's third and final husband, James Hepburn. But that's a story that you listeners probably know, and I will tell on my show another day. I guess I will note that it is just as likely that he was named Henry to emulate other great Henrys of the era. That is, Henry VIII of England, and pseudo-Catholic, truly Protestant, Henry IV, King of France. Now, Lord Darnley is far less interesting a character to me. Honestly, I'm not a big Mary, Queen of Scots fan either, but in reference to the other name on the list, Frederick as he was also named for his maternal grandfather, King Frederick II of Denmark. King Frederick is one of those middle kings that gets overshadowed by the bold actions of those that came before and after. In this case, his predecessor was King Christian III, who famously abandoned the Catholic faith during the Protestant Reformation, converting his state to the teachings of Martin Luther. He was even present at the Diet of Worms when Luther famously refused to recant his calls for reform. So taken by Luther's actions and teachings, and the prospect of seizing church lands, influence, and taxes for his state and himself, he swiftly undertook a religious conversion. Continuing down the rabbit hole, Frederick's successor was Christian IV, who famously led Denmark into the Thirty Years' War on more than one occasion, almost always ending in failure. But in the middle was Frederick II, and it was he who made Denmark into a massive naval and military power for however a brief and fleeting moment that may have been. And as you can see, I tend to stray just a little bit off topic, but who can help but follow Alice down the rabbit hole every now and again? On a side note, on my show we actually call it a beaver hole, but you'd have to check out DGMH to truly follow that logic, and my obsession with that furry, adorable little warmonger, the beaver. 
But back to Henry Frederick, as I am really, truly sure that you didn't care that much about his namesake. Given his short life, though, I don't have a whole lot to talk about. Henry Frederick isn't really known for that much, likely contributing to his forgotten name. But the future Prince of Wales was greatly celebrated in his Scottish infancy. Then only as heir of Scotland and possible heir of Britain, his christening was one of the most lavish celebrations of the time. Held at Stirling Castle, no doubt a call back to James's own baptism there in 1566, days of celebration were filled with festivals, tournaments, and jousts in the week leading up to August 30th when Henry Frederick was finally baptized. And the celebrations and gift-giving would continue for several days after as a great masquerade was held. These days were filled with exotic dances, Shakespearean plays, and the finest sugar confections of the day. And although not in attendance, both Queen Elizabeth I of England and King Henry IV of France were invited and sent gifts and thanks. Still, the greatness of this event is reminiscent and owes a great deal to the festivals of Valois France that were a more common spectacle in the age of Catherine de' Medici. The celebration, which cost the Scots more than £100,000 in new taxes, as well as an equally large portion of Queen Anne's dowry, was meant to be a show of Scotland's wealth and faith, as King James VI's eyes seemed fixated on inheriting the English throne. The whole event was captured in the printing of William Fowler's true report on the baptism of the Prince of Scotland. Historian Rick Bowers notes that the baptism of Henry Frederick is, quote, still seen in terms of courtly extravagance and misdirected ambition on the part of James VI. Yet I think it was so much more. The baptism, specifically securing James's godmother, Queen Elizabeth's support, was an essential move by King James and the Scots as they maneuvered towards English kingship. Beyond that, Bauer notes that it was a further expression of, quote, James' sense of divine absolutism and a, quote, lavish commemoration to assert political philosophy. So, Henry Frederick's baptism was a platform to not only convey, but bolster Scotland's, and really James's, promising future, as King James, quote, alerted all of Europe to the fact that the Stuart political power held promise for all of Britain. Now let us jump nearly a decade to 1603, skipping past Henry Frederick's rather uneventful youth, to a time where our young prince would become the Prince of Wales, shortly after his father's ascension to the English throne, as James VI of Scotland became James I of England. Now aside from the time that Henry Frederick might have slapped his father across the face, one of the most interesting pieces of Henry's forgotten story and young adulthood, which is odd to say considering that there would be little to no actual adulthood in his story, was his role in the establishment and growth of the Jamestown colony. England's earliest foothold in the Americas was a continued and potentially successful investment that his father, who longed for a Spanish marriage match for his son, always hesitated to support. Of course, as an American teacher, Jamestown, the James River, Colonial Virginia, it's always been a James I success. And it was really the true beginnings of a British overseas empire that would grow and grow and grow for centuries. But I was shocked in my research on Prince Henry Frederick to find that it was his financial commitments to the Virginia Company that gave the enterprise the star power it needed to leave port with the king's approval. Don't get me wrong, Jamestown had been established, starving, and a would-be colony for nearly two years. The enterprise in question, Henry Frederick's investment, was the establishment of a true and surviving colony. On the issue, historian Sarah Fraser notes, quote, James, meanwhile, trod carefully. The whole enterprise directly challenged Spain's claim to own all the Americas. She continues, Spain's ambassador in London was horrified by the project, but that didn't stop Henry Frederick. 
Investors were actually intrigued by his connections to the endeavor. He was to be the protector of Virginia. Ironically, it was during the voyage that he patroned that Bermuda was also discovered. Well, rediscovered. Well, actually re-rediscovered and eventually claimed as a British colony after the Sea Venture was shipwrecked on the island for months. And that is a fun story, by the way, that I just don't have time to get into today, but did cover on my show. Back to Virginia. By 1612, Virginia was a bit more of a success. On an interesting note, there were even plans to name towns after Prince Henry, and plans of a college were even proposed. The university would be called Enrico College. In fact, Virginia Company Minutes noted, quote, that 10,000 acres of land for the university had been planted at Henrico, and 1,000 acres for a college for the conversion of the infidels. That area today, Henrico, is actually a Richmond suburb. In doing all this, one historian notes, quote, Henry had been hailed by the English as the instrument to perfect that religious reformation, in part by establishing the New Jerusalem in a now more stable Virginia. Still, hundreds of Virginian settlers were sent to the New World in Henry Frederick's name, and as they suffered living his fantasy and establishing his Protestant empire, Henry seemed to begin moving towards his destined position as the champion of Protestantism, a destiny forged at his baptism, and he would do this now as the Prince of Wales. As Henry Frederick now created the Prince of Wales, a title he debated and fought heavily for, began to come more and more of age, he worked tirelessly to create a modern court as a medium for his own social and political advancement. Yet ever his father's son, he had clearly absorbed the philosophy of a divine right monarchy. It was Henry's understanding that to be a strong, successful leader, he had to first master, quote, four subjects, philosophy, eloquence, politics, and history. Sarah Fraser notes, quote, As a product of his more immediate educational context, he had taken on Tacitus and Neo-Stoicism. This broad philosophical training gave him self-mastery over the passions when wielding power. A mastery of something that I must say his father and, dare I say, his brother seemed to lack. She continues, A quality required more in a prince since he exercises power for the greater good of the public. Rule for the benefit of the Commonwealth gave a context for a monarch's exercise of absolute power. Henry's view was stronger than his father's in recommending constancy, rectitude, and the wearing of an unreadable mask. But again, James and later Charles did not wear such an unreadable mask. No, their aims were clear and clearly came into conflict with a parliament and an England that they grew more and more out of touch with. Yet here we see that Henry Frederick always seemed to have a better gauge of the public well. Fraser then points to Henry's eloquence as she said rhetorical skill helped rulers like him to direct judges, preside over councils, and intervene effectively in Parliament, always in theory allowing one to prevent internal dispute during peacetime. She argues that, quote, as Henry IX, he believed that he would dominate his legislature, bending it to his will through his virtue and powers of persuasion, not by issuing edicts from on high. And it was during this time that Henry was very much so stepping out from under the king's shadow. He then went on to describe his own political philosophy and role as, quote, to assign rights and rule the people with supreme power. But I don't see this as some sort of ill-gotten proclamation of tyranny. Instead, the origins of a sort of benevolent monarch, dare I say dictator, that he hoped to be. Even more so, it was a proclamation of his own political philosophy. Hoping, planning to both rule and reign, he would work with his parliaments, be subject to the will of his subjects, and yet, with reason and logic, always still rule supreme. Henry was a force in English politics, but not a forceful one. To be a successful politician, an arena, by the way, in which his father and brother constantly floundered. 
Henry believed politicking to be the best possible means of asserting, if even just promoting, his future absolute rule, which I feel I should note would be a power supreme but not personal. Yet Henry's life was not solely his own. He was doomed to face the follies of his father, as James had aimed for some time to marry him off to the Spanish Infanta, an aim that would stupidly continue with his second son, Charles. And I know you've heard this story before, so I won't go into that, but this was always plagued by James's constant desire for peace in Europe and peace for England. And beyond a Spanish match, there were even talks of a marriage to a French princess, which would have been a little better, I have to say and actually ended up happening during the reign of Charles. Which, as you will find, didn't turn out so well, so maybe I'm wrong there. Either way, James's endless pursuit of a Spanish bride, even for his second son, did, as Glenn Redworth put it, have, quote, repercussions which reached far beyond the private life of the Stuarts. It cast a shadow over the political judgment of both king and heir, and even led to speculation about their commitment to Protestantism. This notion has mostly been reinforced by historians like the great Charles Carleton, who in his biography of Charles I points to Henry Frederick as a, quote, obdurate Protestant. And as a humble podcaster and teacher, I must admit that I had to look up that word. It means stubborn in course of action. Still, Henry Frederick's staunch Protestantism was not marred by blind religious intolerance. He did not hate, nor was he hated by English Catholics. Beyond that, and better yet, his rhetoric often pleased those hardline Puritans that James and Charles were so often at odds with. So, as Henry's rival court and independent political philosophy emerged out of his so-called collegiate court at St. James Palace, it appeared to many that England had a bright future in store. But I mean, they thought the same about James, especially the Catholic population, and that didn't really pan out, but maybe this time it would all come together. Maybe in Henry Frederick, a King Henry IX, England would find a stable Stuart. Yeah, no. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Sadly, all the eloquence and rhetoric in the world could not change the fate of Prince Henry Frederick. So let's move towards the end of his short life. During celebrations of his sister's wedding to Frederick V of the Palatinate, Henry Frederick took ill with typhoid fever. His death was quick but painful. His body, according to Fraser, was, quote, insulted by the scars left by the well-meaning who had labored to hold on to his life. Some of his last words were, where is my dear sister? That is Elizabeth Stuart, his most trusted confidant, even advisor. Henry died on the evening of November 6, 1612. His brother, who was also ill with the same sickness, mourned his brother more so than any other, attending his funeral even in bad health. A funeral, by the way, that his father James refused to attend. That is not to say that James was not sick with guilt. It was during this time that England's king retired from public life for days, and as weeks passed by, he slowly returned to government business. Yet, as issues arose, his guilt would often get the better of him, and he would cry out in distressful response to nearly every strenuous issue, but Henry is dead. Elizabeth was near frantic. She wept constantly, rarely able to eat or drink for days. 
His death was mourned by Catholic and Protestant alike, as in losing their prince, England lost what might have been a truly great king. Silence fell over his once vibrant court. Many in his time saw the prince as, quote, a door out of darkness, and his court had the support of many well-born parliamentarians, including the Essex family. The Earl of Dorset wrote, quote, Our rising sun is set. Historian Peter C. Herman notes, quote, Consequently, when Prince Henry died, that not only Protestantism's, but England's hopes died with him. He continues, If the number of eulogies in any way indicate, it is worth pointing out that the memory of he exceeded the number written for Elizabeth I. Henry's death did not, however, kill the spirit of his court, the remnants of which became the target of much of King James' blame and hate and they continued to be a thorn in King James and later Charles's side. From 1612 to 1649, it became increasingly clear that the monarchy was shifting, but to and away from what? Turning again to Fraser, she puts it quite nicely when she says, quote, The monarchy betrayed what Henry's political heirs believed both they and their prince stood for, international Protestantism, active citizenship that is a form of public spiritedness, and government by a troika of king, privy council, and parliament, caring for the liberties of the commonwealth. This way of ruling they believed would temper the steel of free absolute monarchy. Eulogizing Henry Frederick, the now lost prince that might have been, the English playwright Ben Jonson wrote, Farewell, thou child of my right hand, enjoy. My sin was too much hope of thee, loved boy. It seems in losing Henry Frederick that the English population lost a glimmer of hope. But there is something there that is in what might have been. So let's explore that. So I got permission from David to speculate a little what if, something that most historians, history teachers, and really me myself aren't a huge fan of. It leads to a lot of bad conversations. But I think it has some merit here, as we try and decide whether Henry Frederick would have been a better choice. Why not? But in order to discuss this, and if somehow you missed David's wonderful walkthrough of the causes of the English Civil Wars, a short and sarcastic overview of the English Civil Wars is necessary. Even if it isn't necessary, I'm going to do it anyways. Now, I have taught Charles I for years, nearly a decade. I studied the Stuarts in grad school, and I have always been fascinated by their failings just as much as their... Eh, Oh, let's say successes. I'm sorry that took a second. I had to try and figure out if that was the right word or not. Now, Charles I is one of the most fascinating subjects of English history that ruled over one of the most dynamic periods in Britain's long past. He is often looked at for his failures, but I would say that he is the closest England came to a successful absolute monarch in the early modern period, having achieved absolute power until his own religious and political stubbornness and idiocy got in the way. He was quite brilliant and creative, always finding ways to operate without Parliament, but never realizing that he was royally ticking off his subjects. Perfect example, ship money. In the case of John Hamden. Ship money was not a Charles exclusive. Elizabeth I had used this emergency tax before, applying it to coastal towns as the massive Spanish Armada sailed towards England. Charles I, however, had not only called for ship money to be collected in peacetime, but extended it to all inland areas of his kingdoms. This was a decision dictated by fairly simple logic. Coastal towns fall, all of England falls. It is, after all, an island. So rightfully, everyone should pay this not-a-tax tax for the security and greater good of the kingdom. Two problems. There was not an impending attack to defend against. Charles I just wanted money to run his kingdom without calling Parliament to raise taxes during his personal rule. And it worked, until it didn't. Charles was able to run his kingdom on ship money revenues for years. The second problem, though, is that people were getting angry. So in one case, John Hampton decided to protest the would-be tax by not paying it at all. 
Plot twist, he owed one pound. You see, it wasn't the money. It was the taxation without representation, without a say. Which is not a British thing at all, he said as sarcastically as humanly possible. The end result, Hamden was arrested, tried, and although there was a split in the vote, Charles faced a public relations nightmare. This is just one example of how the shady policies of Charlie I came to cause a permanent rift between Parliament and King. But I must point out that Charles I was not the sole reason for the outbreak of the English Civil Wars. The Bishop Wars, yeah, maybe, but not the Civil Wars. Parliament had been demanding more and more consent to be governed from the get-go, and they never really worked with King Charles I the way they had worked with his father, King James. But Charlie I's inability to properly gauge the situation would prove to be incredibly costly. My point in saying all this is one simple thing. Charles I proved to be a source of continuous contention and eventually division. So the English Civil Wars. I figured I would approach this long chaotic nightmare that you are all witnessing unfold on David's fantastic show the way I do all wars, as sarcastic as humanly possible and again just sticking to the causes. So where to begin? Charles I becomes king in 1625. In just four short years, he screws everything up. Parliament refuses to give him lifetime guarantees of tonnage and poundage, and so the showdown begins. Charles calls Parliament, dissolves it, does that like three more times. Charles then signs the Petition of Right. His good friend Buckingham is killed, he blames Parliament, and dissolves it again. Eleven years of tyranny and two bishops' wars later, Charles needs to call a short Parliament to get some money, then dissolves it again. Charles still needs money, and for the first time in like forever, Scotland invades and defeats England. Charles calls Parliament, tries to arrest five members, and oops, all the birds have flown the coop. Charles flees London for Nottingham, and the proverbial filth has hitteth the fan, and all we have done is cause a civil war. The first English civil war begins, and as much as I would like to continue onward with grand remonstrances, princes, and puppies, and a fuller overview of the English civil wars, I would hate to spoil David's telling of the story. But you can always go check out my version of events as part of my saga on my favorite Stuart King, King Charles II. Of course, this is a gross oversimplification of events. David did a beautiful job with the details. Me, I am pretty much ignoring a few good popish plots, 90% of the politics, and the glorious story of William Laud. But who really has time for all that during a short story on Prince Henry Frederick? Like all revolutions, the English Revolution, sometimes called the Puritan Revolution, will fall short of completeness. And Cromwell, well, he will take away Christmas parties and women in the theater. After Cromwell came a real dick, literally his son Richard, and then it all tumbled down. And fans of the English Civil War should certainly get that joke. James I has always been a fan favorite. Charles I, though, his full story is one of England's greatest catastrophes. But his questionable reign and his brother's premature death has to make one wonder. Would England really have been better off under King Henry IX? Well, let's look at this. Charles, in my opinion, wasn't solely to blame for the outbreak of the English Civil Wars, nor the sole spark of revolution in England. I mean, if one takes the Grand Remonstrance as truth, Parliament really didn't even think that either. And whether it was his fault or not, Charles I was at odds with his Parliament from the very beginning, or at least they were at odds with him. Either way, Crown and Country were divided from Charles I's first day at work. Issues of tonnage and poundage, strange loopholes to avoid taxation, and of course religious reform drove the wedge deeper and deeper, and Charles lacked the charisma and charm of his predecessors, and honestly, his successor. He never really seemed to have the ability to rally people to his side. He lacked confidence, spoke with a stammer, and just didn't seem to have the head of a leader. I say that knowing full well that again, he really was England's greatest example of early modern absolutism. 
But that absolutism is part of the issue. Those leftover bits of divine rightism that lingered on after his father's death led Charles down a dangerous path. Being too much like James, following too much in his father's footsteps, examining that may help us answer our little fairy tale history question. You see, James, like Charles, was not well-liked. I know I said that like twice already, but I am getting to my point, I promise. My research has pushed me towards the notion that our subject for today may have been the break from James's England that Parliament longed for. You see, Henry Frederick, well, he seemed to be a reminder of a better time. He may have trended toward an even more aggressive form of absolutism, and there's no knowing if he would have been a success, but he seemed to be a stronger figure than Charles, and he seemed to be the opposite of his father. So what would a King Henry IX have looked like? He was a well-liked prince, a Protestant prince, a stronger symbol to wear the crown than the sickly Charles. He had many friends in the various circles of the very foes that surrounded Kings James and Charles. His death even spawned some of Parliament's strongest voices. He had the moderation and calm temperament that his brother lacked. Beyond that, he had the love of his people and court. He had a stronger demeanor to stand up to parliamentarian bullying without seemingly resorting to repression, aggression, and outright dismissal. In pondering the alternative, it is clear to me that a King Henry IX might have been able to rule effectively, possibly navigating better through the pre-war period, maybe preventing war entirely. It is hard to say, though, whether his longing for supreme power would have outweighed his more puritanical leanings, as England grew more and more divided. Had he worked better with Parliament than Charles, then the prevention of civil war is an almost certain reality. In preventing one war, I do, however, believe that England would have found themselves embroiled in the early stages of the Thirty Years' War. This was something James and Charles intended, but never had the money or strength to achieve. Still, I have little doubt that King Henry IX of England, like his uncle Christian IV of Denmark, or Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden, would have rushed to his beloved sister's aid during the rough winter of 1620. Yes, Henry might have emerged as one of those many lions of the north, but would this all have prevented or excited civil war? It's certainly tough to say. Henry, unlike his brother, had the makings of a strong, likable king. But snapping back to reality, none of this really matters. Dreams of Henry IX may have made for a nice escape from the failings of his brother, but I have little doubt that Henry Frederick would have sought after as much power as the brother that he once bullied. As an ailing Charles and a saddened Briton mourned the young king's death, poets and writers alike told tales of his greatness, but we will never know just how great a mind or king he might have been. But one fact is for certain, he is all but forgotten today. The would-be king lost to the shadows of civil war, empire, and bonny little princes. Henry Frederick was not revived as a pillar of excellence in the Restoration. He was not heralded as a model prince in the chaotic year of 1688. No, he was, as he is, forgotten. But maybe we should study Henry Frederick. His life was certainly more interesting than I ever imagined it might be. His princely efforts showed promise. In his disregard for his father's leadership shined hope. Maybe in Prince Henry Frederick, or a would-be King Henry IX, England and Scotland might have found the king that they couldn't in Charles. I cannot guarantee that Henry Frederick would have been less confrontational with Parliament, even if my research does point to that. Given that Henry Frederick became ill at the very celebration surrounding his sister's wedding, it isn't actually the only what-if that this mess raises. In fact, another what-if hinged on the sick Prince Charles from the beginning, who was taken ill with the same fever that took his brother's life. So real quick before we continue on, what then would have happened if both Henry and Charles had perished in 1612? That's actually a simple question to answer, as a few Englishmen had already put forward the idea on a pretty infamous day in English history, November the 5th. That's right, Bonfire Night, the gunpowder plot. 
something most of you are likely more accustomed with than I, but it helps me address this what if. As the answer to who would have gotten the throne had both Henry and Charles died would have been his sister Elizabeth, the wife of Frederick Count Palatine. Elizabeth Stuart was the eldest surviving child of Anne of Denmark and King James I. Of course, she fits into this story as the one that was the desired Catholic Queen of England that would have been installed had the gunpowder plot succeeded. On a side note, historian Ronald Hutton notes that the plan could not have succeeded as the gunpowder had set too long, and it would have done little more than doused Fox's flame. Quote, the reason why the plot was guaranteed failure was simply that the powder would not have blown. But back to Elizabeth, she never did become Queen of England, nor did she become Catholic, but that doesn't mean she wouldn't find her way to royalty elsewhere. Now, in February 1613, Valentine's Day actually, Elizabeth was wed in Whitehall Palace to Frederick V, Elector of the Palatinate, a principality of the HRE, and we won't concern ourselves today with her time as a German electress, but instead her brief tenure as a queen. On the onset of the Thirty Years' War, Frederick was elected King of Bohemia, and he and Elizabeth aimed to enforce their new royal title, but their plans were crushed at the Battle of White Mountain. Elizabeth's short-lived queenship came to an abrupt end, and the pair were forced into exile in the Netherlands. Ruling for only one brief winter, Frederick became known as the Winter King, Elizabeth as the Winter Queen. While in exile, Elizabeth was, quote, one of the foremost power brokers for the Protestant cause in Europe. In the end, she became kind of the opposite of what Fox and friends were hoping for. Frederick died of gout in 1632, and Elizabeth lived out most of her days in the Dutch Republic until finally returning to England when her nephew, King Charles II, was restored to the throne. She would spend her last years there, dying in 1662. So that's what happened, but what if, just for a quick second, we raise the question of Elizabeth's ascension to the throne? This one to me is pretty intriguing, as in the mess of the Thirty Years' War, England was pretty much forced to stay out of it due to the very money troubles that I mentioned earlier that plagued the reign of Charles I. Now, I am sure that an outsider like Frederick, along with his wife and queen, would have been forced to work with their parliaments, but Frederick was a Calvinist, which may have been even more in line with those hardline Puritans that broke from Charles in the first place. The big what-if, however, is that England might have found itself pulled into a continental crisis from the very beginning of her reign, decades before the Civil War ever broke out, entering the conflict in a similar fashion to that of Christian IV of Denmark, defending Protestant freedoms and German liberties as a prince of the HRE. I mean, it was easy for James and later Charles to stay neutral and not aid their family members in the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War. Frederick and his wife Elizabeth, in this alternate line, the King and Queen of England, would have been almost forced to get involved. But that's not what we're really here to discuss. I think it's safe to say that Henry Frederick would have been better off had Elizabeth and Frederick never wed. Either way, he died. But I can speculate that both alternatives to Charlie I, that is, King Henry IX and Queen Elizabeth II, would have been ever more likely to drag England into Europe's continental catastrophe of 30 long years, at one point or another as defenders of the Protestant faith, as lions and lionesses of the North. But one thing is undoubtedly true. King Charles I was no lion. Well, that's it. If you're looking for even more on Henry Frederick Stuart, then I would suggest taking three approaches. First, read about him as a son. That is, turn to a story of James I. I will say that I am enjoying John Matusiak's James I, Scotland's King of England. Then read about him in the shadow of his brother's questionable reign. And for Charles I, I always suggest Charles Carleton, specifically Charles I, the personal monarch. Finally, actually read about Prince Henry Frederick, just him. I will warn you, though, there's not a lot out there, but Sarah Fraser's The Prince Who Would Be King was, at the very least, an enjoyable read. Now, like I said, I am not one for what-ifs. 
unless they are reasonable, even justified. But this harmless postulation at the very least makes one wonder. Could things have been better? Could three wars have been prevented? Could the lineage of a Stuart king still sit on the throne today? In a way, technically it does, but that's neither here nor there. But if you enjoyed this episode and don't mind a little cursing or drinking, then I hope you'll consider checking out my show, Drinks with Great Minds in History, where again I cover great minds, kings, queens, presidents, world changers, sometimes evil villains too. I cover a feast of fools, I cover would-be heroes and horrible villains, plus a whole bunch of other bits along the way. Yes, I might swear a bit and have a cocktail or two, or three, or four, but like I said, the drinks are for me, the history is for you, and I hope you'll consider checking it out. That is, of course, when you're all caught up with the History of England podcast. You can follow DGMH on Twitter and Instagram at DGMH History, and join the Facebook group Drinks with Great Minds in History to join in on all sorts of fun chats. So as we wrap this up, I again want to say thanks to David for allowing me to drop my podcast into his feed. And of course, I hope that you enjoyed this little uh, exploration of a fairly forgotten Stuart. I won't say that Henry Frederick was the greatest of great minds, or really that he even had a strong chance to ascend that level in history. But I must say Henry Frederick Stuart was certainly a challenge to research. Little is said, and few care to say much about him. Yet I think his story is fun and one worth noting. At the very least, it presents a questionable alternative to the tumult of the civil wars, and makes one question how significant Charles was in exciting, if not instigating, the chaos that dominated the 1630s and 40s. Henry was to be, as one historian put it, quote, the perfect king, a warrior like his namesake, a wondrous embodiment of chivalric virtues, a knight defender of Protestantism, and a hero in whom the peoples of the new Great Britain could invest their hopes and dreams of national greatness. But Henry died, and England was left with Charles. And I will let David tell the story from there. Cheers!